When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today we're getting close to Christmas and it's the Feast of St. Thomas as well. So bring your doubts to faith. And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep and said to me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked and behold a candlestick all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it and his seven lamps thereon and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said to me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace upon it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the whole earth. Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive sticks upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The book of Zechariah is probably the most like the book of Revelation in that you have a a guy, a normal guy, uh, seeing visions of things and asking questions of what they are, and then the angels are telling him what it is. The answers of the angels don't always make things more clear, like that last one. He says, what are these two olive branches on each side of the candlestick? Oh, those are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord. Okay, well, who are they? Uh, Sometimes we don't get all the answers we're we're hoping for from the angels. Angels seem to be preoccupied with with other matters than what humans are occupied with and what we think about. I think there's something about angels that uh, really are curious about humans. We know that from some of St. Paul's writing where he says angels are curious about this and look into these issues often as if like they try to study it but can't understand it. 
Because humans, we are consumed with ourselves. We have to think about how short our lives are. We have to think about food every single day. We have to think about shelter. We have to think about just the basics of life just about every single day of our lives. Uh, and the, the more free from those you know, lower level concerns we get, the more intellectual things we can do and more art we can create and lots of other wonderful things that humans do when they don't have to worry about just basic survival. Maslow's hierarchy of needs is pretty true. You know, the very basics at the very bottom of the pyramid, if you don't have those, you can't really get up to that top part of self-actualization. I think, uh, according to Maslow, uh, he and Jesus Christ were the only two people who had ever fully reached self-actualization, he wrote. Uh, so, you know, pretty smart guy, but I'm sure there was somebody else along the way. But that's the, the concerns of humans. The concerns of angels seem to be very different. They don't have to worry about food, shelter, those sorts of things. So they always kind of wonder what we're all about, why we have so many problems here on this earth. And that is why Jesus, in the incarnation, God did not become an angel. God became a human being. And that is a really big deal. Uh, in that God became subject to the limited concerns of you, yours, life, and mine that are not always so ethereal and philosophical and fanciful. A lot of our concerns are really, really, really basic. And so this vision that Zechariah has of these lampstands, these candlesticks, he is in the temple. And remember the problem of the temple of Zerubbabel, the second temple, the one that Jesus worshiped in, greatly expanded upon by Herod the Great. So when Jesus is there in the temple, it's a magnificent structure. But in the days of Zerubbabel, Zechariah's writing, the temple doesn't look that great. It is nothing like Solomon's temple. It's not as glorious. It's not built with the same fancy materials and and all these other things that people had seen before. Remember, they weep when they see the temple for the first time because it's not as nice as the old one. I mean, talk about nostalgia. Nostalgia is a terrible drug that plagues all humans, especially around holidays. We remember better holidays, better times, and we get sad and things like that. Um, and this is true. This is who Zachariah is writing to people who are troubled by the smallness of Zerubbabel's temple. So what does he say to these people who are discouraged? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That the real things in life that are valuable, that we should celebrate, are things of the spirit. I think this is the message of Christmas in many ways. Charles Dickens captured it in A Christmas Carol. He uses the word spirit many, many times in that, uh, in that novel and in the movies that we've all seen. I listened to the novel for the first time last year, read by Tim Burton, I think, or some other actor. I think it was Tim Burton. 
read the novel. It's free on Audible. It was free on Audible. I don't know if it still is. But uh, he, Charles Dickens describes, um, you know, this, this idea of the spirit of Christmas in a very detailed way that I've never seen a movie get into, get, get into it in this detail. Um, that that the, he's, cause they, the criticism comes, he has this discussion there in the story. This criticism comes that, um, that the spirit of Christmas is not a Christian spirit. It is a pagan religion, uh, religious spirit from the old paganism of Europe that Christians are supposed to resist. And Dickens in that book, I can't quote him directly here, but he makes it very clear that, that there is religion that, that tries to stop people from enjoying themselves at this time of year. And that was true in Dickens' day with the Puritans. And that is not true Christianity. True Christianity goes into the joy of the season. And so the spirit of Christmas and the joy and celebrations and even wastefulness at Christmas time, which is what Scrooge's problem is, is they're wasting all this money on frivolous celebrations, that that is true Christianity because of what, who Jesus was and what he did here on this earth. Uh, so the spirit of Christmas, the spirit is the thing that we should celebrate at Christmas. The movement of the spirit, it is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, temperance, virtue. It is these wonderful traits of us, of human beings, when we share good things with each other. And it is not about the, the uh, it is not about the, the largeness of something, the prosperity of something, or the power of, of some institution or person. It is ultimately about the spirit of God. And then he says these great words, get up there and cry over, saying grace, grace upon it. Grace, grace upon it. Uh, this is the word of God. There is so much grace in the world. And then this last line, which always, as a church planner, warms my heart. Despise not the day of small things. Despise not the day of small things. Our Christmases this year may be smaller than ones in the past with less people, less family members, less resources, less joy, less other things. But do not despise that. Despise not the day of small things. Because in the, eye, the eyes of the Lord are watching. The eyes of the Lord are watching. And even though the temple of Solomon was bigger than the temple of Zerubbabel, the temple of Zerubbabel is where the Lord is running to and fro, watching those who worship God. God is present in the small things. God is present in the things that may not seem significant uh, in the eyes of the, of the society we live in, in the world, and whatever standard we've erected to judge ourselves. Uh, ultimately, we are not to despise the day of small things, but realize that the Spirit of God is present in them. Because we are, like Zechariah, standing next to the candlesticks. We are in the inner sanctum of the temple when we worship God. And those candlesticks that we see here in the temple, here in Zechariah, we see again in the book of Revelation, in the temple in heaven, that is where we are. So I hope you 
when you see the lights of Christmas, the candle lights here in this place, or wherever you see candle light this year, I hope you can see the spirit of God that is resting on you and lighting up the world of small things. And today the church remembers St. Thomas the Apostle. St. Thomas the Apostle is um, one of our major feast days of the church, although it falls in Christmas, so, you know, doesn't get a lot of big-time celebration. And we also have a, a reading of the Thomas account at Easter right after Easter Sunday. So that generally is where we focus on Thomas. But the Episcopal Church still commemorates Thomas today, as do several other churches, although I think the Roman Catholics moved him to the summer, probably because of Christmas. The Gospel of John records several incidents in which Thomas appears, and from them we're able to gain some impression of the sort of person that he was. When Jesus is going to Judea to visit his friends in Bethany, Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. You know, is that sarcasm on Thomas's part? Sounds like it. That he was a smart guy who had a lot to say, had a lot of thoughts and questions about who Jesus was, even to the very last. He interrupts Jesus at the Last Supper. Lord, we don't know where you're going and where, where, where's the way? We don't know the way. And this is the scripture we read at a lot of funerals. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Um, I would have told you, if I, if I, I go to prepare a place for you, um, this is Jesus' response to Thomas's question there at the Last Supper. After the resurrection, he did not accept the account of the women and the other apostles until Jesus appeared to him, showing him his wounds. And we have here from Thomas the first acknowledgement publicly of Jesus' divinity in a very clear, concise way, where Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Um, He's called doubting Thomas sometimes. Not always fair to him because the gospel writers put his stuff in there because they felt like he had something to say that was important. And he is questioning and lots of other things, but um, he never really stops believing in Jesus. He works really hard to believe in Jesus by asking questions, investigating, and trying to find things out. Um, So there's much to Thomas. The earliest traditions we have of him by Eusebius, who's a church historian very early, and others is that he went to Persia, modern Iran, and the Syrian Christians of India have a tradition that when he went to Persia, he kept going east and came to India. And uh, we have a church that we are in communion with called Mar Toma, Thomas by the Sea, there that um, traces their origin back to Thomas. If you go there, which a friend of mine did, 
you can see in a glass case the spear that killed St. Thomas. Uh, they have that there in their church or cathedral as a relic of his martyrdom for, for Jesus. Again, that's not in the New Testament. That's in a pretty early church tradition there that he went to India. So lots of churches are named after him in India. Um, his, his questioning and doubt, uh, Jesus assures him that he is one of his disciples in spite of his doubt and questioning. A uh, number of years ago, there was a document discovered called the Gospel of Thomas. And uh, it, it was a, a, a account of sayings of Jesus recorded by Thomas. Uh, and many people fast, fastened on this as sort of a different Christianity that was better and better than the New Testament and things like that. I encourage you to read it. It takes about, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes or less to read it. It's not very long. It's a list of sayings of Jesus, most of which are in the New Testament and the Gospel accounts. Um, most of them are in the, the Gospel accounts. It's clearly a, a document that is not fully Christian uh, in that there's some sayings about men and women in there that are pretty disturbing. One of them is when Jesus says, you have to become a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, he says to Mary Magdalene, you have to become a man to enter the kingdom of heaven, which was an early non-Christian sort of Christian heresy slash Gnosticism slash another number of other things that really felt like men were the real human beings and women were kind of partially human. So that in order to become a full human being, you had to become a man. And uh, I, can, I can imagine a lot of men really enjoying believing that, not so much the women. Again, Christians have always had uh, troubling beliefs that the church has hopefully purified and tried to weed out. And this Gospel of Thomas, which wasn't written by Thomas, uh, is one of those that you'll see associated with him a lot. But maybe that is sort of his legacy for us, that this document that for a lot of people cast doubt on the New Testament accounts of Jesus, by, by allegedly by Thomas, um, has made people study Jesus' teachings even more and study the New Testament even more. So in some ways, this strange document has been a gift to, to scholarship and the study of that document, I think a lot of people have grown to appreciate the four Gospels' um, account of Jesus' life. There's the, the theory of... Thomas is also called the twin uh, in the New Testament. He's called the twin. And whether he... And there's different theories on this. One is that he looked like Jesus. So everybody thought he was Jesus' brother or twin. The other is that he actually had a twin brother that looked like him, that everybody kind of knew, but Thomas went into the ministry, so he's the only one we meet in the Gospels. And I always credit Jeremiah Griffin with this, um, with this insight that maybe that's why Thomas doubted so much or he questioned so much, because he knew that most people are fairly, fairly uh, unobservant if you're a twin and you've 
easily fooled people on your identity. My cousins who are twins would change shirts and you could not tell them apart and we played every day together and they would switch shirts and, you, and fool everybody. And this, they did this their whole you know, childhood and had a, a really good time doing it. And I think when you've done that enough and you realize how unobservant people really are, that they could be so wrong about a person's identity uh, just from just being twins, um, I think you would be a little more uh, cynical about the certainty of human observation, uh, that the account of Jesus coming back to life uh, may not have been true because people kind of look like each other sometimes, and maybe you saw somebody that looked like Jesus. Um, Anyway, that was his theory, and I think it's a pretty good one to reflect on, that just because you saw something doesn't mean it's true. Um, Thomas knows there has to be more to Jesus coming back to life than just somebody seeing him. And he gets that something more in his encounter with Jesus. Ever-living God, who did strengthen thine apostle Thomas with sure and certain faith in thy son's resurrection, grant us so perfectly and without doubt to believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord and God, that our faith may never be found wanting in thy sight. Through him who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.